preach the gospel and to share Jesus. And so um, we saw the trial, we saw the testimony of Peter and John, and then we saw the threatening of Peter and John, and those guys pretty much told them, hey, don't preach in this name, don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they knew they couldn't do anything because of the miracle. And the reality is this, in, in your life and in mine, when God, when God heals your son, nobody can argue with that. Nobody can argue with that. Your salvation experience, you, when you accepted Christ as your personal savior, nobody can argue with that. And these guys had no argument for the, here stands a crippled man who has been healed. Here stands a crippled man. Isn't that funny? But here's that crippled man that's been healed, and he stands there before them, and the people, the multitude, is it, I mean, they are excited, and they're, they're milling about because of this miracle, and the Sanhedrin, the rulers, had nothing to stand on. They couldn't argue. They couldn't do anything about it. It was what it was. So they couldn't punish Peter and John, and they couldn't fight over the, the, whether or not this guy was healed because he was healed. It was, it was in your face. It was obvious. And so they had to let Peter and John go. So they let Peter and John go. And they, now listen, don't you preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And that's what they did. So they let Peter and John go. Well, after they let Peter and John go, Peter and John go back in uh, verse, verse 23. They go back to their comrades. They go back to their fellow believers. And so now I want to look at the triumph of Peter and John. And then after we look at the triumph of Peter and John, we'll look at the togetherness of the believers uh, in the rest of the chapter and into chapter 5. But first of all, the, the triumph of Peter and John. Notice what it says in verse 23. It says, and being let go. So they let them go. They went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. So here, Peter and John, they go back to these fellow believers and they give a testimony. They testify of what God had done and what they had gone through and what they had seen. And they share this with these fellow believers. And, you know, tes testimonies are important. Testimonies matter. Sharing what God does in your life, what God does in my life matters because it is, it is edifying. It is strengthening. It is encouraging. It is helpful to one another as believers. And testimonies matter. Don't ever think that your testimony is too small or insignificant. Don't ever think that your testimony doesn't matter because it does. Even your children, when they want to give a testimony, it matters. Brody, I'm glad you gave a testimony. Um, I, I think of Savannah Camacho, who has, has gone through some different things in, in, you know, in high school and different things, and she's struggled with some things, and she's given testimony to that. That should be an encouragement to other teenagers. Listen, kids, teens, you guys can be a help and an encouragement, and you guys can edify one another and help keep each other accountable and strengthen and help one another. It is not easy being a young person today. The, our world has lost its mind. And the things that your kids are going through in, in high school and middle school, I'm amazed the things I hear about Fort Morgan's middle school. I'm, I, I don't know that I've really heard, I mean, some of the classes and stuff and the kids that are going through the middle school, I feel like I hear a lot of bad things about the middle school, and I don't know why. But our kids are struggling. And listen, you guys can be an encouragement to each other. Your testimony 
matters. So they go back and they share this testimony. And because they share this testimony, notice what happens in verse 24. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. Notice this. Here they raise their voice in unity. Here this church, this body of believers, they rejoice and praise God together for what has happened. And, you know, uh, Thane mentioned this morning there about weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. Empathy. The ability to be happy or the ability to hurt for one another matters. And we should be able to share in that when people share their testimony. We should be able to share in that. And so that's exactly what happens in verse 24. All of them come together and they begin to praise the Lord. And notice what they say. And said, Lord... Thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. The first thing they do is they glorify God for who he is. You are Lord. You are God. Have you ever stopped? You know, we live in a world of information. You can Google anything. You can, you can search anything. You can research anything. You can look up anything. And we are just bombarded with information. Have you ever stopped to consider that the God of the Bible, the God that you and I worship, is the one and only God? He is the one and only Lord. Buddha is not God. Allah is not God. There is no other God. There is one and one and only true God, and that is Jehovah God, the God of the Bible. And we are here tonight, and we are worshiping him. He gave us his word. He has spoken to the world. And you have that in your lap. And you have a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. And he is the only God. There are no other gods. Listen, when you, when you praise God, don't forget to praise him for being God. I think sometimes because of all the information, if we're not careful, it's almost kind of like, we put like this God pecking order, like Jehovah God's at the top, but then all these other ones are below him, and they're just not as good. No, no, no. They're not God at all. They're dead. They don't exist. They're a figment of man's imagination. They're a lie from Satan. They're not real. Our God is the only real God. And ladies and gentlemen, what an awesome thing that is. And we cannot forget to praise him for being Lord and being God. This Lord refers to the fact that he has a right to rule. God, Lord, he is Lord. He has the right to choose and decide what happens and what doesn't happen. He is ultimately in control. Not only do they praise him for who he is, but they also praise him for being the creator, which has made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. He is the creator. This also goes back to the fact that he's Lord. Why is he Lord? Because he's creator. He made you. The inventor gets to decide what happens with the invention. And God made us. God made the world, and he created everything that's in it. And he has a right to decide what happens. So they praise him for being God. They praise him for being the creator. Notice this. Verses 25 through uh, 28 are really, are really interesting to me. Notice verse 25. It says, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? 
The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth, against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together. Here he quotes uh, Psalm chapter 2. Why do the heathen rage and imagine a vain thing? Notice the context is Peter and John before the, the, the Jewish leaders. We, need to, we always need to adjust our perspective and remember that there is always something greater going on in our lives. You know, uh, Thane this morning talking about relationships was talking about getting this right before this can be right. If you, if you ever look at like a marriage relationship triangle, you always have the husband, the wife, and you have God. And the closer you get to God, the closer the husband and wife come together. We need to remember that. But many times what happens is we get so focused on this that when we get bumps in this road and we get little hiccups, we forget about this. We abandon this. And we fail to remember that God has a bigger plan. God is always in control and he's always doing something. And so we have to remember that. And here, in regards to Peter and John, I love their attitude. Why do the heathen rage and imagine a vain thing? Do you realize the plans of men mean nothing? Verse 28, look at verse 28. For, that is a reason or a purpose word. Why, why have these things happened? Why have the heathen raged? Why have the king stood up against the anointed? Why has verse 27, why is Jesus, what happened to Jesus Christ? Why has that happened? What's the purpose? Verse 28, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Do you realize the things that happen in your life and in my life are playing into God's plan. Everything. Everything. Do you realize what's happening in Washington is playing into God's plan? Do you realize what happens in Denver at the Capitol building is playing into God's plan? Do you realize whatever is happening in California, as psychotic as it might be, is playing into God's hand or plan? Do you realize everything that's happening in Atlanta last night and probably today or whatever is playing into God's hand or plan? Everything is playing into God's plan. Think about the disciples when Christ was crucified. They, they didn't know what to do. They were scattered. They were confused. But it was playing into God's plan. Have you seen this latest gun control bill coming into Colorado? That supposedly the wonderful Governor Polis has said he's not going to sign, or at least hinted at that, that he's not going to sign it. But do you realize it's going to make felons out of a bunch of innocent people? Do I like it? No. But I do know that it's playing into God's plan somehow. I can't see God's plan, and I don't know what he's planned, and I don't know what he's already determined. But God has a plan. Listen, as Christians, we get, and we all do. This is one reason why Wes doesn't read the news that much anymore. That's one reason why I don't go to Breitbart anymore. That's one reason why I don't really look at anything anymore. My, my mom calls me every now and then and says, hey, did you hear about this? And I'm like, no, I haven't heard about that. 
I know maybe maybe I'm sticking my head in the sand and maybe it's kind of simple minded of me, but I just get so aggravated, frustrated, and then I don't sleep at night. And then my wife and I aren't doing so well. So I don't read a lot of news anymore. And my mom's like, how do you function without reading the news? I'm kind of like, it's great. <laughs> I, I kind of like my ignorance. But, um, but whatever is going on, we have to guard our perspective and remember that God is in control. Governor Polis isn't in control. Joe Biden isn't in control. And whoever else, they're not in control. God is. And that was the perspective of these believers. And that's what they were praising God for. God, this all happened and Peter and John were thrown in jail and they stood before that Sanhedrin. But God, we know you have a plan. And we have to keep that perspective. We have to remember, no matter what happens on this plane, on this plane there is a greater plane and God is in control. God always has a plan, no matter what's going on in our lives. God always has a plan. Verse 29, and now, Lord, behold their threatenings. So you see them praising God in this triumph. But then the second thing you see here is a request for grace. Now, here's the thing. We're all going to go through trials. We're all going to go through difficult times. We're all going to go through troubled waters, however you want to look at that. We're all going to have difficult moments in our lives. It was no different for these disciples, for these apostles and these believers. It wasn't any different. So what did they do? How did they react? What did they do about it? They asked God for grace in verses 29 and 30. What is grace? It's unmerited favor. It's God's assistance in what he wants us to do. It's God enablement for what he wants us to do. So what do they say in verse 29? And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thy hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. They asked for grace. A couple things about grace. Number one, grace is available to you and me as Christians. The Bible is very clear, for by grace are you, are you saved. We are saved by grace. By God's grace, we are saved. But in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, we are told that we can come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You can go to God and ask for grace anytime. Anytime you have the authority, you have the privilege, you have the right to go to the very throne of God and ask for help. But not only do we have, are we, do we have access to grace, but also God's grace is sufficient. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse nine. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. God's ability is is maximized in your inability. Don't get caught up in your inabilities. Don't get caught up in your weakness. Don't be embarrassed by your weakness. In fact, embrace the weakness and ask God to help you. Ask him to help. He wants to help. Do you help your kids with everything? As parents? Let me ask you this. Do you think it's hard? Do you find it hard as a mom or dad to watch, to allow your kids to fail. Isn't that hard? 
But failure is a good thing. Failure is a good teacher. I, I, would, I would have to admit that I, I am a fixer. I like to help. I like to like, oh, hey, here you go. And there are, it is hard for me to like take my hands off and pull back. But if my kids come to me and say, hey, dad, will you help me? I'm going to help them. I'm not going to go, no. Now, I might tell them, I might try to ask them some questions. Well, what do you think? And what do you think about this? And how does this look? And I might try to kind of like lead them along a little bit, but get them to think through it. But if my kids ask me for help, I'm probably going to help them somehow. God is no different. God is no different. Remember when Jesus talked about if you being evil can give good gifts to your children? You know, how many of you, if your kid asks for a, a piece of bread, you'll give them a stone? You remember that passage? As ridiculous as that is, he goes on, how much better is your heavenly father? God wants us to ask. He wants us to run to him for help. And when we do, God is wanting to help us. So, um, grace. Here they request grace. A couple, a couple more thoughts real quick. Number one, acknowledge the threat. Notice what it says. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. When you need grace, acknowledge why you need grace. Acknowledge the weakness. Acknowledge the circumstance. Acknowledge the problem. God, I need grace. And, and, and communicate that to God. But not only acknowledge the threat, but ask for boldness. Notice this. And grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. Ask God for boldness. Listen, I, I believe this with everything I have when it comes to grace. That God gives grace when we take a step of faith. God is not all of a sudden going to make you he-man so you can take a step. I believe when you, by faith, take that step, boom, God gives you grace. And he gives you the strength. He gives you the boldness. When you take the step. But you have to take the step. And here they ask God, give us boldness, courage, confidence. But we need to remember the reason. The reason here, notice this, boldness that, that they may speak thy word. Listen, grace... And boldness are not about you, and it's not about me. Once again, we got to get that perspective right. It is for the advancement of God's word. It is the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. It is the advancement of God's purposes. It's not about us. It's not about us looking smart. It's not about us looking confident and bold. It's not about us having the right answers. It's not about that. We have to move past ourselves and realize that God is going to give us grace and boldness to push his purposes forward. And that's exactly what they were asking for here. So notice verse 30, and here's kind of an interesting verse. By stretching forth thy hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Now, I think it'd be real easy right here to be like, man, if God gives me grace, and if I am bold, and I speak his word, I can start healing people. I can start doing some crazy stuff. Uh-uh. 
verse 30 is all about the word in verse 29. The word by is a time word. It means while. So in other words, while they are speaking the word, they are healing and they are doing wonders in the name of Jesus. Once again, it goes back to the word. Okay? You need to understand something. At this point in time in history, they didn't have this. It was all new. And what the apostles were preaching, what they were teaching, what they are speaking is coming from God, is coming from the Holy Spirit, and they're sharing this information. But how are you going to prove it? How do we know you're right? Well, that's what the signs and the wonders, that's what those things were for, to prove, to establish the word of God. That's what those things were for. We have the word of God today. God's given it to us. You can accept that by faith or not. But I don't have to heal somebody to prove that this is God's word. He's given it to us. We have it. He's established that already through history. That's been done. But I will say this. Have you ever heard of David Brainerd? Anybody ever heard of David Brainerd? David Brainerd was a missionary to uh, the American Indians in the Northeast. And there's a story, if you read the biography of David Brainerd, uh, the Indians didn't love David Brainerd so much because he preached against their paganism and, and their worship of animals and different things, and where he was trying to reach them. And so they didn't really love him that much. But anyway, there was a violent tribe of Indians that, that they had been watching David Brainerd, and they were going to kill him. David Brainerd had a habit. He would get up early in the morning, and there was this stump out in this pasture where he would go, and he would kneel, and he would read his Bible, and he would pray. So those Indians were watching David Brainerd, and so they, they, they watched him long enough, and they saw his routine. So one morning, they were waiting for him. So those Indians are in the, in the trees, and here comes David Brainerd. He gets out there to the stump. He bows down, and he's reading his Bible, and he's praying. And according to his biography, this poisonous snake comes up on the other side of that stump right in his face. And it didn't do anything. And that snake crawled back down the stump and left. David Brainerd went back into that village and those American Indians started getting saved. If you ever get a chance to get the book by John R. Rice, I believe it's called uh, Cowboy Boots in Darkest Africa. It's a really interesting book. It's an old book. But uh, John R. Rice tells the story. Um, he was in Africa on a missions trip and he's in a bus with some other Christians and they were going through this part of Africa that was occupied by violent violent tribesmen i mean the, the tribes that were there were cannibals and extremely violent so their bus breaks down and john r rice goes on to tell the story that that night they slept in that bus the next morning they went into this tribe and began to preach the gospel and people were getting saved and it wasn't until later that one of the tribesmen told john r rice he said the night you guys broke down we came to your village or to the bus. We had you surrounded, and we were going to kill all of you. But the bus was guarded by soldiers. Probably angels. So they didn't attack. Uh, there's a, there was an old missionary, I believe he's dead now. Um, his name was Daryl Champlin. 
He was a missionary in the Congo in the 60s and 70s. You can buy his book, and he tells stories of walking on coals of fire. He, he tells stories of com- combating witch doctors. And some of the stuff that he writes and some of the stories that he used to tell are unbelievable. But I do believe this. I do believe that God at times does miraculous things for the preaching of his word. I do believe that when God's word goes to somewhere new and God needs to establish the authority of his word, he allows things to happen. I can't explain it. I wouldn't expect it. But I do think God at times does miraculous things for the, for the advancement of his word. And that's exactly what the disciples, these uh, believers are asking for in verses 29 and verse 30. So they ask for grace. They ask for God to do something miraculous. And so in verse 31, notice what happens. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. God answers their prayer. God answers their prayer. I don't think this was about them. I don't think they were like, oh God, we want to do something amazing. I don't think it was about that. I think it was just simply, God, will you give us the power? Will you give us the grace? Will you give us the boldness to speak your word? And God gave them exactly what they needed to do so. And honestly, I don't believe that your life and my life is any different. I believe that if we will ask God for the grace, for the boldness, for the power, he will give it to us so we can interact and push his cause, his purpose, his kingdom forward. I think he will. So in verse 32 now, we move on to the togetherness of the believers, this unity of the believers. Notice verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Listen, their unity ran deep. It ran deep. And you know, there isn't anything more exciting than a church that is unified. You know, you can go over to uh, Philippians chapter 2 in verses 2 through 4, and there you will find uh, the unity that we're supposed to have as believers. But listen, they had, they were of one heart and of one soul. From the very innermost part of their being, they were all on the same page. They wanted to advance Jesus advance Jesus, advance Jesus. And they were unified. Listen, I've heard some crazy stories about churches. I've heard of churches uh, splitting over the brand of the lawnmower they were going to buy. I knew of a church in Georgia that split over what side of the auditorium to put the piano on. Listen, as people, we are crazy. As human beings, as wretched sinners, as sheep who have gone astray, we can be real selfish and real opinionated about stuff that doesn't matter. But man, people can be crazy. These people, same page. They were all headed in the same direction. And you know, I, I think that's one of the most encouraging things about Platte Valley Baptist Church. People are just on board. You just want to serve. You want to be a part of things. You want to help. You want to minister. And it is awesome to watch. It is awesome to be a part of. It, it's exciting. 
It is, it is awesome. And that's where these people were. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which they possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power, the apostles witnessed uh, of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or of house, houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Here, they gave, James, you gave your testimony tonight. I believe pastor only said something in Sunday school last week. I didn't even know about it. I didn't even know about it. And we kept taking them food this past week. We kept taking them food. What an awesome thing. You know what's interesting to me? Fain quoted, used these verses this morning. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, the Bible says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his own life, his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But so, whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, notice this, but in deed and in truth. Do you realize in Acts chapter 4, they didn't have 1 John chapter 3. Do you realize that? They didn't have 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 saying, hey, it's not good enough just to say you love somebody, but you need to do something about it. They didn't have that. Here in Acts chapter 4, they just did something about it. And you know what? When people are sensitive to the Holy Spirit and they're sensitive to the Lord and they want to please God and God's the one who matters and that's where they're, they're living their life here instead of here, when people have need, real quick to help, real quick to act. That was you guys last week. How It's awesome. It's awesome to watch God work in people's lives and see them make decisions and do things. And they, it just happens. Sometimes it kind of makes you feel like you're worthless as a pastor. When you don't have to like tell, you know, prod people and people just kind of do stuff. It, it's awesome. It is amazing. And that's where these Christians were living. They were, that's where they were living. And so what happened? Some people had land and they sold it so they could give it. I, I don't know that I've heard this passage preached a whole bunch. I don't know if people manipulate and use these, uh, these verses for... Um, for their own gain. I, I would imagine it wouldn't be too hard to twist these verses a little bit and try to manipulate people into giving more. Not because God wants them to, but because a preacher could guilt them into doing so. But that's not what happens here. There's no guilt. This is just simply God leading people and God being submissive to what God wants them to do. In fact, we're going to see the opposite in chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. But let's finish up chapter 4 real quick. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we have a generic example here. He says that there's people who had possessions and they sold it and brought the money to the apostles. But then we get a very specific example in Barnabas, who was a Levite, who sold his land and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Great. Praise the Lord for Barnabas being sensitive to the Holy Spirit and doing what God wanted him to do. 
I will throw this out there, though, just to get your wheels turning. Notice it says he was a Levite. Did you know, according to the Old Testament law, a Levite wasn't supposed to own land? Did you know that? But he owned land. Now, this isn't my original thought. I read this somewhere. But there is a part of me that wonders if Barnabas selling his land was a rededication to the Lord. I do wonder that. I just think, I don't know. I find that kind of interesting. But anyway, here, Barnabas sells his property. He gives it to the, to the church, to the believers, so that everybody can be, so people can be taken care of. Which brings us to chapter number five. And now you have the direct opposite of Barnabas. Notice what happens in verse one. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. So they sold a piece of land. They sold some land. Whoopity-do. Okay, great. You sold some land. And kept back part of the price. Okay, it's your land. Great. His wife also being privy to it. Okay, he communicates with his wife. They sold the land. They kept some of the money. Great, and his wife knows it. He's not hiding anything from his spouse. Wonderful. And brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay. Is there a command in Scripture that sell, says if you sell a piece of land, you have to give it all to your church? No. So they sell some land. They keep part of the money. They bring the, other, the rest of the money and they, give it, they bring it to the apostles. Great. No harm done. Verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land? Oh, wait. There's, an, there's another motive here. This isn't we sold the land and, you know, we needed to keep some of it to pay some debt off or we needed it for ourselves or we wanted to put it in savings or whatever you want to do with it. It's your money. Who cares? It's your money. There's something else going on here. And God made it clear to Peter what's going on. And so Peter asks, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Do you realize when you confront people, this is good with your kids too. It's always best to ask questions. Instead of accusing and getting in somebody's face or your kid's face and just telling them what they did, if you ask questions, it forces them to answer the question and they convict themselves. When you, when you just accuse people of things, People get defensive. They want to fight. But when you ask questions, it forces people to answer those questions and realize, oh, yeah, I did that. Does that make sense? Try that with your kids sometimes. It's kind of funny to watch their face. But uh, anyway, so Peter asks a question. But notice verse 4. Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? Yes, it was. And after it was sold. Was it not in thine own power? Yes, it was. Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. Now listen, Ananias and Sapphira, they make a decision to do something on this level. 
They're more concerned about what you and I see instead of what he sees. Peter in verse 4 points out very clearly, Ananias, this was your land. This was your money even after you sold it. You didn't have to do what you chose to do. You didn't have to give any of it. Nobody in chapter 4, even Barnabas, didn't have to give what he gave. I would, I would assume, I, I realize I'm using the word assume, but I would assume that God led Barnabas and these other people in chapter 4 to sell their possessions and give the money to this body of believers so that other people could be taken care of. I would assume that. I, I kind of wonder, were Ananias and Sapphira led to do the same? Did God say, hey, I want you to do this? And so they sold their land, but it was kind of like, man, that's a lot of money. You know what? What if we put part of it away and we take the rest of it and we give it and we just say it was all of it? I don't know. I don't know if from the very beginning they just said, hey, you know what? Everybody else is selling their stuff and the church is going, oh, look at them. They gave so much money. Aren't they amazing? Hey, I want people to think I'm amazing. So, hey, let's sell our land. We'll give part of it so that way people think we're amazing, but we'll say we gave it all. I don't know what their motive was. I don't know what their rationale was. I don't know what God was trying to lead them to do. I don't know. We don't have that part of the story. But we do know that they sought to lie and to deceive And God killed him for it. Listen, you owe me nothing. You owe each other nothing. You don't have to impress me or anybody else. God is the one who sees everything. According to Hebrews chapter 4, I believe verse 13, he is the one with whom we have to do. He's the one you're accountable to. You don't have to prove anything to me. You don't have to prove anything to the person sitting next to you. God is the one you're accountable to. And Ananias and Sapphira lost sight of that. They got stuck on this plane instead of worrying about this plane. And here Peter says that Satan filled their hearts to lie to the Holy Ghost. And ladies and gentlemen, that is a dangerous decision. That is a dangerous decision. You have a responsibility to do what God wants you to do with everything you got. And when we try to hold back, and when we try to keep something for ourselves, or we try to straddle that fence with God, it never works out. It never works out. Never. Never. So then in verse 6, And the young men rose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours. I kind of wonder if Ananias is sitting at home twiddling her thumbs going, or Sapphira's at home going, okay, where's Ananias? It's been three hours. What in the world's going on? So she comes to the church. Verse 8, and Peter answered, answered unto her, and tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, yea, for so much. And Peter said unto her, how is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. Listen, when God works in your heart, when God uses his word to challenge you to make a decision or to do something, that is no light 
manner. It matters. It matters. And we can't take those things lightheartedly. We can't just overlook it. We can't ignore it. When God in his mercy leads you, challenges you, speaks to you through his word, we have a responsibility to obey, to respond, and to do what he's leading us to do. We have to. Teenagers, some of you kids in here, listen. Some of you, you go to camp, God works in your heart, you make a decision. Those decisions matter. Those decisions matter. Don't take those lightly when God works in your heart. When God challenges you or is leading you, God calls you to preach or to serve him full time, that is not a light matter. I'll say this, parents, be careful. Your kid comes home and says, man, I feel like God wants me to do this. Oh, try to encourage them. Try to, try to push them towards that. I have, I have seen parents, I have had friends who had parents who discouraged that and fought that. Don't, don't do that. The leading of God is a great matter. It is not to be taken lightly. Ananias and Sapphira played the game and they lost. Listen, God, your relationship with God is not a game. It is not a game. It matters. Don't take it lightly. You serve the living God. Don't take that lightly. Don't take that lightly. Sorry for the pun, but it has grave consequences. But anyway. Ananias and Sapphira, Peter and John. Next time we'll pick up back in verse 12 and, and keep moving forward through the book. But anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us. Pray you keep Pastor safe as he and Nelson come home. Lord, give us a wonderful night's rest and a good, a good week in Jesus' name. Amen.